You're listening to Comedy Central. March 11th, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. is the Dutch historian and author who went viral when Tucker Carlson told him to f- off. Rutger Bregman is joining us, everybody! <laughs> also, also on tonight's show, President Trump has three new scandals, Michael Jackson gets canceled, and why Joe Biden would be a terrible R&B singer. So, uh, it's gonna be a fun show. But before that, how you guys doing? I've missed you. You guys good? Yeah? I've missed you all. Yeah. I hope you're good. Uh, because I am not, this daylight savings thing is trash. <laughs> I feel like I'm hungover and I didn't even drink, like... No, because, like, not only did we lose an hour, it was a good hour. <laughs> 2 to 3 a.m. on the weekend. Like, we're in the club having a good time, and then it just closed, out of nowhere. <laughs> like, why don't they schedule daylight savings for, like, 4 p.m. on a Friday, yeah? It should be like, oh, it's 5. Yay! <laughs> daylight savings. That's my proposal. I'm running for president. But enough about how much I hate daylight savings time. Let's catch up on today's headlines. All right, let's begin with that devastating news of the Ethiopian Airlines crash. This is the second time in six months that this particular model of airplane has gone down. And many countries have decided, hey, let's not take any chances. Take a look at the list of countries that have now grounded the Boeing 737 Maxis. They include Indonesia, Mongolia, Ethiopia just had the crash, Morocco, and China. That's right. You know shit is serious when China is stopping something for safety reasons. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, their in-flight meals were lead paint chips, and they were like, yeah, this is fine. This is totally fine. <laughs> and you may be wondering now, uh, what is America doing about this? Uh, nothing. That's what, yeah. The FAA came out today saying they're not going to ground these planes. Uh, Americans can decide for themselves whether or not they want to fly on these planes that have now crashed twice. <laughs> yes. And I know what you're thinking. That's crazy. No, my friends, that's freedom. That's what that is, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, but America's wild. Like, the rest of the world is worried about this plane, but the cowboy of the planet is like, well, looks like we got a bird that don't want to be flown. <laughs> yeah! Buckle up, Bessie. It's gonna be a rough one. <laughs> you know what I think happened, to be honest with you? I think Sully has screwed Americans over. Yes. Because now every pilot in the country is like, what's the big deal? If anything goes wrong, I'll just land on the Hudson. <laughs> it's like, but we're in Idaho. Okay, sharp left. <laughs> Moving on to some other news. Paul Manafort is in the headlines again. Paul Manafort is going to prison amid a barrage of criticism from people who say President Trump's former campaign chairman got off easy. A judge sentenced Manafort to 47 months yesterday for fraud and tax evasion not related to the Trump campaign. That sentence is far less than the nearly 25 years prosecutors wanted. Paul Manafort, sitting in a wheelchair because of complications from gout, said before his sentencing that he feels pain and shame, adding, my life? professionally and financially, is in shambles. 
That's right. Paul Manafort basically stole millions of dollars from the bank and cheated the government out of millions in taxes, and he's only going to serve 47 months. 46 with daylight savings. <laughs> and, uh... I've got to admit, it was really slick of him to suddenly show up in court in a wheelchair for gout. Yeah. Have you noticed how people always get older and more pathetic when they go before a judge? Like, Bill Cosby was out there doing his thing, and then they arrest him, and all of a sudden, he's like, I'm old and my eyes are blind, can't see the bee, 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 boo. <laughs> like, showing up in court is like the opposite of a dating profile. You want to look as old and as sad as possible. <laughs> so Manafort, Manafort, is facing 20 years in prison, and then he just rolls in and he's like, I'm a broken old man. And then the judge gives him just 47 months. And we actually have exclusive footage of Paul Manafort in the courtroom immediately after hearing his sentence. (laughs) (laughs) You should have seen it coming. Moving on, while Paul Manafort got a fake sentence for a real crime, there's someone else who's looking at a real sentence for a fake crime, Jussie Smollett. A month and a half after the Empire actor reported a hate crime that police say never happened, prosecutors are throwing the book at him. Actor Jesse Smollett is in more trouble this morning after a grand jury indicted him on 16 felony counts, including lying to police after he said he was the victim of a racist attack. Now, each one of the 16 counts carries a maximum penalty of four years in prison. Four years in prison? Wow. Look, I I don't condone what Jesse might have done, but that's out of line. Like, I, I mean, first of all, you can't charge him separately for each lie. All right, it's all the same lie. (laughs) Yeah, he lied to all of the police. That's one lie. When I was a kid, (laughs) if I stole something and I lied to my mom and I lied to my grandmother about it, I get one whooping, okay? (laughs) You can't get a separate whooping from each person. It's the same lie. (laughs) And if they're gonna start putting people in jail for lying to the police, they should lock us all up, okay? (laughs) Yeah, you've done it too, every single one of you here. Every time a cop pulls you over and asks, uh, do you know how fast you were going? Oh, the limit minus one. You know how fast you were going. (laughs) The only good thing for Jussie right now is that if he does go to jail, he's gonna be the toughest guy in prison. Because when people ask him what he's in for, he's gonna be like, I got four years for beating myself up. (laughs) God damn! (laughs) And finally, in some entertainment news, Michael Jackson. A new HBO documentary accusing him of child molestation has everybody shook, and some people have had enough. A new online petition is demanding Cirque du Soleil cancel its Michael Jackson One show. The demands are in response to the new HBO documentary, Leaving Neverland, which details accusations of sexual abuse against the iconic singer. Nearly 7,000 people have signed that petition. It is the latest backlash following the release of the new documentary. Some radio stations are pulling Michael Jackson's music, and The Simpsons removed an episode in which he voiced a character. I was thinking, between MJ and R. Kelly, this is a tough week for wedding DJs. Like, (laughs) what do they play? It's like, no, 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 no. I bet you they're probably calling up Bruno Mars, like, you better behave, Bruno. (laughs) Right now, all I can play is you and the Black Eyed Peas. (laughs) And you know, the the tough thing about Michael Jackson is, even if this documentary changes your opinion of him, there's nothing you can do about it. He's already dead. Like, you can't get any more canceled than dead. (laughs) Although it would be funny if, if Michael is in heaven and God calls him over, like, hey, Michael, so I saw the HBO doc, and I'm afraid I'm not comfortable having you right here right now. (laughs) 
It's 2019, this is not a good look, so I'm gonna need you to go to hell, okay? And Michael's like, but God, you impregnated the Virgin Mary without her permission. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. So look, I, I won't lie, I'm a huge fan of Michael Jackson. This is like a painful story, you know? You have to stop listening to the music and now I have to picture him in hell, which is sad and hilarious at the same time. Because <laughs> I'm picturing him in hell and he's the perfect person to be in hell because he's like, ah, 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 that's it for today's headlines. Let's move on to our main story. We are now just 602 days away from the 2020 presidential election, which means it's time to check in on the Democratic primary race in our ongoing segment, World War D. <laughs> the Democrats are still over a year away from picking who they will send into the ring with President Trump. So we don't know who it will be, but now we at least know where it will be. Here it is. Democrats have picked officially Milwaukee for the site of their 2020 presidential nominating center. DNC Chair Tom Perez selecting the city over Houston and Miami. Yes, the Democrats have officially picked Wisconsin to host their 2020 convention. And it makes sense. They couldn't have gone to the other options, Houston or Miami, in the summer because Bernie does not do well in humidity. <laughs> now... <laughs> now, the speculation is that the Democrats picked Wisconsin to make up for the fact that in 2016, Hillary Clinton never campaigned there. Yeah, she just totally took it for granted, you know? She basically treated Wisconsin the same way I treated my English exams in high school. I was like, I speak English, I don't need to study it. And then I got it and I was like, semicolon? Uh, I guess that's when a comma has sex with a period? <laughs> anyway, now that the convention city has been picked, the question is, who will be accepting the nomination there? And it seems like every day, more candidates are joining the race. Among the latest to jump in is Washington Governor Jay Inslee, who has made climate change the centerpiece of his campaign. And he's gonna have an uphill battle because half the country doesn't believe climate change exists. And 100% of the country doesn't believe Jay Inslee exists. <laughs> yeah. Even his wife is like, I've never heard of this guy. <laughs> also joining in the race is John Hickenlooper, Yes, he's the former, uh, former governor of Colorado with a name that sounds like a disease you got on the Oregon Trail. <laughs> it's, it's either that, it's either that or the name of a local restaurant where all the waiters have those vests with buttons on them. You know, it's just like, welcome to Hickenlooper's. Our special today is the Hickenlooper Chicken Chalooper. Tastes like dirt, but it's fun to order. So with Inslee and Hickenlooper in, that brings the Democratic field up to 14 potential candidates. Yeah, just look at all those faces. <laughs> Look at all those faces. <laughs> there are too many candidates, people. The Democrats are like the Marvel universe. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. We need Thanos to come in and just snap a few of these guys away. He he can looper. Get out of here, you can looper. Go, go. But what's strange is that all the buzz right now isn't about the Democrats who have entered the race. All the news is about the big names still sitting on the sidelines, all right? Names like Beto O'Rourke who is quickly becoming a Texas-sized tease. Beto O'Rourke says he has made a decision after months of deliberation about his political future. There's some speculating on whether a big announcement is in his near future. I'm gonna be making an announcement soon. I'm gonna be making the same announcement to everyone at the same time. Well, it's been 10 days now since O'Rourke announced he plans to announce a decision about his political future. Are you being serious? 
first Beto said he's thinking about announcing, and now he's announced that he'll make an announcement about his running. <laughs> if this is how he runs his campaign, what is he gonna be like as president, huh? My fellow Americans, I've decided which country we're gonna declare war on, and I'll tell you who it is right after this. <laughs> and also, Beto, you don't need to build up the suspense, okay? We know you're gonna run for president. This is like Groot building up a big announcement. We know what you're gonna say. You are Groot. We know. <laughs> While Beto is leading America on, there's another big-name Democrat who's giving America red, white, and blue balls, Joe Biden. Sources close to Biden tell NBC News that he may decide, possibly as early as this week, whether he will officially get in the race. His advisors are preparing for a potential April launch if they get the green light. I have not made the final decision, but don't be surprised. Former Vice President Joe Biden leads the pack, even though he's technically not part of it yet. That is insane. Joe Biden is winning a race that he's not even in. <laughs> that is such a boost for his ego and also super insulting for all the people who are running. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, people nobody cares about, like poor John Hyperloop or whatever the, I said his name is. Because <laughs> this whole thing must feel like the middle school dance all over again, right? All the girls are waiting on Joe, who said he's thinking about maybe coming to the dance. Girl's like, I can't wait to dance with Joe because he's my favorite. And it's like, oh, hi, ladies. I'm actually here right now. It's like, oh, good, Hickenlooper. Can you text Joe and ask him if he's coming? <laughs> and honestly, it's amazing that a guy who has already run for president twice and bombed is now leading the race. If you ask me, it's probably because he's been standing next to Obama for eight years and now he has that good president smell, yeah? <laughs> yeah. It's that, it's that good B.O. That's what that is. <laughs> in fact, I bet Joe Biden could win an election just based on this idea. He'll be at campaign rallies holding up his phone like, vote for me because I've got Obama's number on this phone. <laughs> I can call him right now. <laughs> but we don't know if he'll run. We don't know. So with just 602 days until the presidential election, Joe Biden, and Beto O'Rourke are taking their sweet time deciding. And here's the thing, I wouldn't mind so much if they were being quiet about it. Because right now, you guys are just being a tease, right? America, these are the things that I would do for you if I were running. <laughs> if I were running. Like, can you imagine if R&B singers were as noncommittal as Beto and Biden? Well, you don't have to imagine because we did it for you. Presenting from Beto and Biden Productions, the sounds of maybe. This album has all your favorite R&B songs, including 50% Chance of Love, Let's Consider Getting It On, and the hit I Might Love You All Night Long. I might love you all night long, but I'm still weighing my options, baby. So act now and order this CD today. But just a heads up, we might not make it. We'll be right back. We didn't have shows last week, which in the era of Donald Trump is always risky, because the news moves so fast. At the end of five days off, we couldn't be back and being like, well, we're back. President Trump and Vice President Flavor Flav just announced <laughs> that they will steal Seattle back from Mexico. <laughs> Thankfully, though, we didn't miss too much last week. But we did want to catch up with some fun Trump highlights, starting with this one. 
Last Wednesday, at a moment during an advisory board meeting at the White House that was caught on camera, President Trump called Apple CEO Tim Cook, Tim Apple. I used to say, Tim, you got to start doing it over here, and you really have. I mean, you've really uh, put a big investment in our country. We appreciate it very much, Tim Apple. <laughs> Tim Apple. You know what I like about this one? It's just dumb, all right? <laughs> It's just a fun, dumb mistake that Trump made. Or maybe, maybe this is just how he says names. He calls you by what you do and your first name. It's Tim Apple, it's uh, Jeff Amazon, it's Jussie Unemployed, uh, you know? <laughs> and this should have been just a fun slip of the tongue. We laugh, we move on. But because Donald, compulsive liar, can't let anything go, <laughs> this morning he tweeted this. I referred to Tim and Apple as Tim Apple as an easy way to save time and words. Really, Donald? Really? That's what you were doing? Well, allow me to save time and words. Get out here! <laughs> like, you're saving time by saying a confusing sentence and then days later tweeting a long explanation about it? And also, since when does Donald Trump care about saving time? Right? No one wastes more time than Donald Trump. He spends as much time on the golf course as Tiger Woods and as much time on porn stars as Tiger Woods, okay? <laughs> so Trump wants us to believe that Tim Apple is fake news. But there's actually some fake news that is plaguing the president right now. It's about Melania. The fake Melania conspiracy is back after the First Lady's visit to Alabama and Georgia this week. The theory that Melania Trump had a body double for public appearances began in 2017, but that was denied by fact checkers. Now though, again, Twitter users are comparing this to other images, arguing it's not the same woman. But many also commenting lighting and makeup are likely causes for the mistaken identity. How is this on the news? How is this even a thing? Of course, Melania looks a little different on some days, right? She's a person. Every person looks different day to day. This was me, like, two months ago, okay? <laughs> this was me three years ago, all right? This was me yesterday, when I found out J-Lo is engaged, okay? <laughs> I look different. I look different because, clearly, I'm so happy for her and, like, the 20th best Yankee. <laughs> I'm very happy. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I just... I wanted A-Rod for myself. <laughs> so, please, guys, let's stop with this whole fake Melania business, all right? Because it's not true. Although, I will say this. If you do zoom in on that picture, there is something a little suspicious. And that is that they're holding hands. <laughs> so on second thought, maybe fake Melania. But conspiracy theories aside, there's another story that Trump wishes was fake news. Remember a few weeks ago uh, when Robert Kraft, Patriots owner, and guy you always see naked on a nude beach got caught up in a Florida prostitution sting? Well, it turns out Kraft's happy ending may lead to a sad one for Donald Trump. 
There is a new twist to the prostitution scandal involving Robert Kraft. The woman who once owned the Florida massage parlor tied to that case appears in a selfie with President Trump. Here's the picture. This is a picture of 45-year-old Lee Yang at a Super Bowl party. It was hosted by the president in his Mar-a-Lago resort in West Palm Beach, and it was taken the day of the game. Kraft and the president, as you know, are longtime friends, and they have socialized at the golf resort before. This woman was at Mar-a-Lago with Trump. All right, that's just dangerous for both of them, especially for her, because you never know when Trump is going to pull another Tim Apple, you know? <laughs> Might just be like, this is my friend, Cindy Handjob Spa. <laughs> and... And it's not just... It's not just that she's taking photos with the president. It's that she might be pimping him out, too. Her name is Lee Yang. She goes by Cindy. She's been spotted with a who's who of the GOP, including the president's sons at Mar-a-Lago. 45-year-old Lee Yang runs a consulting business that has offered to sell Chinese clients access to the president and his family at Mar-a-Lago. The company boasts that it has arranged taking photos with the president and suggests it can set up a White House and Capitol Hill dinner. God damn, man, how does every scandal somehow lead back to Donald Trump? Like, this dude is like the Kevin Bacon of corruption. <laughs> I'm serious, like, you could probably link Donald Trump to Kevin Bacon just through scandals. You go, uh, Kevin Bacon had money stolen in a Ponzi scheme by Bernie Madoff, okay? Uh, Madoff also stole money from Governor Elliot Spitzer, and Spitzer was busted in a prostitution ring after a tip-off from Roger Stone, who was just indicted by Mueller in the investigation of Donald Trump. Boom! Four moves, baby! Four moves! Everywhere you go. And basically, that's our world now. A rich guy can't get jerked off without it somehow leading to a possible Trump campaign violation. <laughs> so even though President Trump never went to that massage parlor, somehow they still <laughs> him. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is a historian who writes for The Correspondence and an author whose latest book is called Utopia for Realists. Please welcome Rutger Bregman. <laughs> welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Uh, a few months ago, for many people, your name did not exist in their minds at all in any <laughs> way, and now you are uh, a superstar especially for many young people, because of your views in and around tax and the super wealthy around the world. How did you come to this from, from, from what you do? Because you're a, you're a historian. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you are a Dutch historian. I, I'm a Dutch historian. That's how everyone refers to you, the <laughs> yeah. Dutch historian. I think, you know, I'm really part of a, of a much wider movement, you know, uh, a whole new generation that thinks that we need to move on to, to new ideas. Yes. And basically that realize that we need a massive transformation of our economy, so. And I was just in a place at the World Economic Forum where usually, you know, not many people get to go there. And I was just one of the few people there maybe right. talking common sense. We, we actually have a, a clip um, that went viral. If, if we can play that right now. Almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. This is not rocket science. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid <laughs> philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more, but come on, it's, we gotta be talking about taxes. Yeah, That's it, taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit, in, in my opinion. So this was, to give people context, this was you sitting with 
the richest people in the world. Yeah. And you were, you were, <laughs> you were actually supposed to be there to talk about just like the other aspects of your book, like universal basic yeah. income, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And you surprised everyone with that. They were not happy. They didn't really like that, no. <laughs> I was, I mean, I was supposed to go there and promote my book, talk about universal basic income, yes. which has become a really popular idea. But, you know, during the conference, I became more and more uncomfortable uh, because you can talk about all sorts of issues there, right? Feminism, participation, equality, but then no one raises the T word, right? You're not, don't, people don't really talk about taxes and yes. tax avoidance. So I, I, I just went to my hotel room and prepared this short speech and I got the question from, from the moderator and basically ignored his question and then uh, went ahead. <laughs> since that, since that little um, moment in Davos, have you noticed a few private jets following you now? Have you, uh... <laughs> because it, it seems like something that, that would piss a lot of really, really wealthy people off. That, yeah. that idea of them paying more tax and them avoiding it. Why do you think that's more important or should be like one of the main conversations uh, apart from transparency mm -hmm. and, and equality and philanthropy? Well, you know, I'm a historian, right? So um, if I see someone like, say, uh, President Trump talk about we should make America great again, he wants to go back to the 50s or something like that, I'm like, yeah, well, maybe that, that's a good idea because in the 50s, we have much higher tax rates for the rich. In fact, a billionaire like Trump would pay like 90% top marginal tax rate. Right. Uh, the, es the estate tax was over 70% uh, for people like Trump. So, um, yeah, I mean, make America great again. Bring back those higher tax rates. That would be my slogan. <laughs> Do you... <laughs> there are... There are many people who would argue against you and say to you, yeah, I mean, you, you, you say you want to raise taxes on, on the wealthy, but the wealthy are already paying their fair mm -hmm. share of taxes. People are paying almost 50% of what they earn. Isn't that fair? Mm -hmm. How do you respond to them? You know, there's this whole boring debate in this country about, you know, capitalism versus socialism. Um, from my perspective, it sounds a bit ridiculous. Like, we're talking about ideas like Medicare for all. 70% of all Americans is in favor of that. Higher taxes on the rich, 75% is in favor of that. Right. So it's utterly mainstream. And I know that sort of the standard response here is always, ooh, that sounds like communism. That sounds like Venezuela. But it's not communism, it's common sense. Right? <laughs> it's, it's what most people support. Let me, let me ask you this. One of, one of the things I know get, that gets thrown at me all the time is people go, oh, you, you, you raise the taxes and everyone's gonna leave because I mean, you know, if you, if you raise the taxes for the rich, then the rich are gonna go live in countries mm -hmm. where they don't have to pay as much tax and you've lost all of those incomes and you've lost all of those people in your country. Well, America is the most powerful country in the world. You know, it can easily crack down on tax paradises like Holland, where I'm from, right? right. We're one of the main tax paradises for American corpora corporations. So, you know, that's really a matter of, of political will, I guess. Just them being willing to say, hey, we're gonna tax you no matter where you go, yeah. no matter what you do. Yeah. It, it's interesting that you, you, you fight for these ideas when you come from Europe. People would say to you, but, but Radka, you, you come from a country where things are great. You do have all of these services. People are not struggling as much as they are in other parts of the world. Why is this so important to you then? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the American debate is incredibly influential back in Holland, right? So, uh, uh, and we've got rising inequality in Europe as well. Right. Uh, and uh, the welfare state that is under pressure. But I mean, it's also true that I, if I look at a debate, right, around Medicare for all, for example, America is the only country in, in the, the, the rich world that doesn't have it. And still it has the most expensive healthcare system and, and life expectancy is going down. So yeah, that seems pretty ridiculous. You have a bunch of ideas that many people would consider ridiculous. 
depending on their age, and mm -hmm. I find a lot of young people genuinely love as genius. Mm -hmm. um, Utopia for Realists is the book mm -hmm. that you wrote, and it's come back into prominence again because you, 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 it's just like a fun read. You talk about all of these ideas and how they could actually be implemented, which is interesting. It's not just the ideas. Universal basic income, uh, open borders, 15-hour work week, Really, just, I mean, this is like a book. This is like Freddy Krueger for a GOP person. <laughs> this, is, this is like nightmare stories. That's yeah. what this is. Indeed. Did you um, see the picture of Rupert Murdoch reading I actually book? did. I did see that. We have that picture, Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, how it, do you feel about that? There is, there is one of the people you're yeah. speaking about. I, I framed it, obviously. It's a, it's a right. picture, yeah. Like, w when you talk about these issues, like universal basic income, for instance, Mm -hmm. Seems like a, a, a crazy idea. You're just yeah. going to pay people to not work, then why would anyone work? Yeah. Well, what not, not many people know actually is that if you go back to the 60s, almost everyone believed, all the experts believed that some form of basic income was going to be implemented in the United States. And it was actually Richard Nixon, of all people, who had a bill for a modest basic income that got through the House of Representatives twice and was only killed in the Senate by Democrats, not because they didn't like the idea of completely eradicate po eradicating poverty but because they wanted a higher basic income. So it's a, it's a pretty bizarre history uh, wow. that I you know, describe in the book. Uh, another, another bizarre thing is that actually there were major trials with basic income in the US back then. You know, thousands of families received a basic income just yes. to test what would happen. Turns out it was really effective. You know, healthcare costs went down, crime went down, kids did much better in school. But then there was one problematic finding is that they also found that the divorce rates went up you know, quite a lot because a lot of women were like, okay, I'm gonna leave that, that asshole. <laughs> and, uh, um, but, then, but then all the conservatives obviously said, okay, we don't want basic income anymore. This is gonna make women much too independent, right? It was only 10 years later that they found out that they had made a statistical mistake. So in reality, the divorce rate did not go up. Oh, it's, man. it's a pretty bizarre history full of that. Wait, let, me, let me ask you this then, as, as a historian, who is basing your arguments on things that have actually happened, does it frustrate you when you see politicians like Trump, um, I guess, misstating their plans based on a history that they, that they don't seem to understand mm -hmm. themselves? Because like you said, Trump says, we're gonna do it the way it was, but then when you propose the way it was, he's like, no, I, I, I don't like that. Do you think that as people in general, we just don't know enough about our histories? Well, what frustrates me the most are these people, the so-called moderates, the centrists, who say, oh, that's never going to happen. You know, that is too radical. Right. Uh, if you zoom out a little bit, you see that so many times in history, utopian fantasies have become reality. Um, I think as? that's important to keep in mind. You know, the, the democracy was once a crazy idea, right? right? The end of slavery was once a total fantasy. It all happened, but it never starts in the center. It always happens, starts on the fringes with people who are first dismissed as radical, as crazy, as, as lunatics, right? So uh, I guess we gotta be a bit unreasonable sometimes. You have to be unreasonable to move the conversation forward. The 15-hour work week is probably my favorite part of your book. <laughs> how, how does that even begin to work? Yeah, well, it, it goes back to a very old idea, actually, of the, the economist John Maynard Keynes. He wrote this essay in 1930 that you know, sort of make two predictions. The first prediction was, we're gonna be a lot richer in the future, right? Mm -hmm. If we don't make stupid mistakes, like start another world war or have right. austerity during times of crisis. Well, we did that, but anyway, <laughs> we'll be a lot richer and then we'll use that wealth to work a little bit less each year. And um, then he just extrapolated and said, we'll have a 15 hour work week in 2030. The fascinating thing again, from the historical perspective is that up until the seventies, 
you know, we were on track to, to make it. You know, the work week was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And the experts were predicting that the biggest challenge of the future was going to be boredom. It's only around 1980 that, you know, throughout the developed world, we've been starting to working more and more. And we've been keeping on inventing these jobs that don't really need to exist. Right. Right. So people sitting in offices, sending, sending emails all day to people they don't really like and writing reports. No one's, <laughs> no one's ever going to read. Right. So uh, that's what they the, the, the academic term is bullshit jobs. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's just like basically you just sit there and then you're just like uh, to whom it may concern reply all as per my last email, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yes, exactly, I, yeah. That's half yeah. of my day. But then the, um, fascinating, <laughs> the fascinating thing is, is that most of these, these jobs, you know, are people who have wonderful resumes, you know, who went yes. to great universities and have wonderful job titles. But then still, at the end of the day, they're like, mm, you know what, well, I could go on strike and no one would notice. Um, so in the book, I've got this story of two strikes that happened in, yes. in, in the 60s. The first strike was of garbage collectors. New York, 1968, lasted for six days. State of emergency had to be declared. Turns out we can't do without garbage collectors. Right. So at that point, I wondered, has it ever happened you know, in history that the bankers went on strike? Yeah? So I started looking, you know, looked at the past 5,000 years, basically, since the invention of money. And I found only one example. And this was in Ireland, uh, 1970. The bankers were angry that their wages were not keeping up with inflation. So they said, you know what, you'll have it. We're going to go on strike, and then you'll see just how important we are. And all the experts were like, oh, this is going to be a disaster. It's going to be a heart attack for the economy. And then from one day to the other day, 85% of the money supply was not accessible anymore. And then nothing much happened, actually. So um, <laughs> the strike lasted for six months in the end. And after six months, the bankers came back and said, all right, all right, all right, we'll get back to work. <laughs> and uh, I think. This is another example where history just makes you rethink, right? Who are the real wealth creators right, right. In, this, in this country? Is, does wealth really, you know, is it really created at the top and then does it trickle down? Or maybe it's the other way around. And are, are the teachers and the garbage collectors and the nurses, are they the real wealth creators? Wow, that's powerful, man. Um, let me ask you this as a historian. If we don't take these concepts seriously, if we don't think about how we protect workers and not the jobs themselves, if we don't think about how to get people paying their fair share of taxes, how we uh, stop people avoiding tax, which mm -hmm. is a huge issue, what do you then worry would happen based on history? Well, what I worry about the most is, is that if, about the moments when people just don't have hope anymore for, for a better future, right? So my frustration a couple of years ago when I started writing this book was that I saw so many people, you know, young people or people who call themselves progressives, who only knew what they were against, right. right? Against austerity, against racism, against homophobia, against all these things. That, and yes, I'm against them as well. But you also have to know what you're actually for. Right. And that's why I'm so excited that you see this whole movement now of, indeed, younger people who come up with all these fascinating new ideas, sometimes old ideas, sometimes new ideas like the, the Green New Deal. Uh -huh. um, that's what excites me the most, because we need hope. Wow. Thank you for being on the show, man. Really great having you on. <laughs> Utopia for Realists is a really fascinating read. It's available now. Thank you so much. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. 
Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.